Kia ora and welcome to CircuitCast. My name is Danny McIntosh and today you're listening to part one of a three-part series called Sites of Connection. In this series, I speak to three artists working at the intersection of filmic language, poetry and metaphor. My guest for part one of Sites of Connection is James Tapsul Kururangi. James is an artist whose recent video works combine deeply personal histories with a fragmented visual sensibility and methodical approach to time. Kia ora, James, and welcome to CircuitCast. Oh, kia ora. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I know it's really late in the evening for you. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about your recent video works, A Portrait with My Father, made in 2022, and Hewaiata Aroha, made in 2021. Both works have a really strong emphasis on the personal and domestic but first, I wondered if we could talk about an even earlier piece that you did where you lived at your grandma's house. And I think you've described it as a year-long performance artwork. Could you tell us a bit more about that work? Oh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, it was uh, yeah, a work that I'd made just after I had finished my studies at Massey. What had happened, my grandmother had passed, I was just finishing her master's, and I had, for the last part of that, we had to do a showcase of our work or, like, what you're going to present. And uh, I was in Wellington and thinking, oh, there's no kind of space that I want to present in here. And, you know, in my work, I'm not making objects. I'm not, there's nothing essentially physical as such that I'd been producing. So I was like, oh, and I've been going on all these trips to different places over the two years of masters. It all had to do with my connection to my family. Like the first one I'd gone back to Hinemoa Street, where we had our old house of 27 years and we'd sold it. And it had been turned into an Airbnb that I discovered. I'd said to one of my supervisors, Dr. Martin Patrick, I wouldn't mind going back there for a week um, as as an artwork. And he's like, oh, that's a great idea, TJ. So uh, that was the first kind of way of thinking this kind of, I, like, an easy way to access it is through, like, a, a durational work, performance work. I don't know how to describe them in a way. I try to kind of subvert that way of describing them like that because of all the baggage that comes with describing it in that way. Mm. So, yeah, the first one was titled uh, My Home of 27 Years is Now an Airbnb. And then the second part of it was going to my grandmother's house. And that started with me simply taking uh, a week to go back and stay in Nan's house after she'd passed. After I'd finished that week, it just didn't feel like enough time. Like it was like so short and, and brief. So I thought I'd go home after I finished age for a long time and see, I was like, okay, what would it be like to think about this performance that is for a whole year, not like really clearly defined, also like really blur the lines of like, I'm going to be working at the same time at the local council. I'll work on the phones there and see what people of Otoro are ringing up the council for. Uh, <laughs> and that was like... <laughs> Rights, angry about my rights, angry about the dog that's barking next door. Um, and, and then at the same time, like, 
going home and back to Nan's house and then just having these really quiet, quite lonely times sitting in the house when the heat pump broke, doing nothing and feeling very like, oh, what have I done? I've left Wellington. I've left all my mates. I've left art. Now I'm sitting alone in the house and this is supposed to be an artwork. That's a little bit of a kind of a weird background to how I got to staying there. (laughs) How do you reckon your experience there kind of affected your decision to include family members in your subsequent artworks? Well, that actually had gone from like an undergraduate, I'd studied photography. And I think one of the first little assignments we were given was make a, a series of photographs on the camera. I don't think it was too much harder than that. Or maybe it had to include people or something like that. I'd seen Stefan Ruiz was one of this artists who'd gone over to Monterrey in Mexico. And there was this little like anomaly of Mexicans who wanted to be Colombians and they were going around the embassy there. So they were like Colombians and he was taking street photos of them and you'd set up like a little really fast studio there. And so I, I went around Wellington and took a backdrop and some lights and my mum and dad and we drove around Newtown and I would go and ask people if I could take their photo. But when I was going through that and the further kind of I went along, I realised that to actually like represent a person and all of their being and make sure I've got their point of view and kind of like learning more about art, found it, it could be quite bad when you get the, it, it wrong and... You know, I learned like words like ethnography at, at uni and all that kind of stuff. So I was thinking, how can I continue a lens-based practice or some a practice that has to have some kind of representation with some kind of way that's not going to end up with this kind of ethnographic study or something? So I was like, whose stories can I really represent and also that have some kind of like unique thing to them? oh, if I tell my family stories, it's the most unique position that I could occupy as an artist. I do worry about maintaining my whānau's privacy. So there's always this boundary that I kind of have my own little ethics conduct in my head. But it was a conscious decision while kind of going through my studies that I slowly changed from photographing others to thinking about how I can centre myself and in the work. In Hiwaiata Aroha, a lot of the imagery is very blurry and kind of abstract. Could you speak a little about your approach to filmic language here? Well, blurry just looks good. (laughs) 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 You know, because the atmosphere and the effect. (laughs) On a serious note, I was thinking a a lot about what I was just just talking about. There There are two places for um, people who haven't seen the work or don't know much about Hiwaiata Aroha. One is my grandmother's house, and the other spot is where it's on the Tongariro River, just below Pihanga, where her father drowned. Really, like, pody, so deeply sad spots for my family. But I was really drawn to them. I'd been at my nan's house for that year, had heard her talk about her father drowning. See, it even feels weird for me to talk about this on on the on a on a podcast quite uh, publicly but yeah i had found this story that she had kept in this little photo album while i was staying there for that year 
so I had wanted to go and see the spot at the river because yeah part of the way I was thinking about was like what happens if I also change what begins the work like as an like the oral history they've been but not this kind of essentialized form of an oral history of you're standing on the pie pie with the some kind of the old one of the sticks where they're going through this kind of really strict whakapapa and that oral history being passed down but thinking about my Scottish grandmother and her Scottish father, that being the old history that's being passed down to me, and then going and starting it there. So anyway, going back to your question, the reason why it's blurred is because that was to main, maintain privacy for those two spaces in one way, but in another way, like in a subconscious way, when I was filming, it was just like what I was drawn to film and maybe sub consciously the kind of level that I was trying to you know like I'm a year essentially studying the sunlight pass through my nan's house mm -hmm. and about the same kind of duration or even longer that would have been going back and forth to the Tongariro River and looking there and the, and the reason why it also blew the Tongariro River is because I'm Tiarua you know what I mean I'm from up in uh, the Bay of Plenty region, and that's falling in the Tuwharetoa area. And even even that, in terms of who's Rohe and who's Awa, that is, I'm not like I'm not hard out on the Whakapapa. So it was about making sure that if it, it's someone's like Taong and they have belonged to that, it was to make sure that I uh, mediated that through blurring the actual the being of the river. But I always enjoyed the connection. Of thinking about the Tiarua Tohunga Ngatoroirangi walking all the way down to Tongariro, which passes through there, and that connection with Tuwharetoa, or when he called to the sisters of that he was about to die up on the up on the Maunga up there, that was another kind of uh, layer to it. But yeah, that's why it's all all blurry. But I'm not blurring it in my conversation now, which I'm like, I'm still trying to learn about how you negotiate. Can we talk a little about your use of te reo Māori and English in this work and how the two languages kind of relate to each other um, because some sometimes they're translated um, and other times they're not? Yeah, well, in Hiwaita Aroha, there's essentially two texts. One is a waiata that uh, is at the end, which isn't translated. And at the start, yeah, there's, there's this voiceover that goes all the way through it, and that is translated. To write it back, there was a story written, which I'd said before that I found, of like my great-great-grandfather passing and... It was a fairly odd story uh, written by this retired vice admiral, uh, Harold Hickling, who had been, I'm sure he was in the Navy, and I'm pretty sure he's buried in somewhere in Tūrangi. But he had, from memory, shot down one of the naval ships in friendly fire and had been discommendated out of the Navy. So he'd come to New Zealand, uh, I guess, in his later life, and written trout fishing guides. And one of the trout fishing guides was on the Tongariro River. 
well, one part of this guide in one particular section, there was a very odd piece of text, and that was the text that Nan had saved, which talked about her father passing. It was a fairly, like, average description, I thought, at the start. You know what I mean? It was just like it was the last moments and on it goes. I've been reading another book. I would have been reading Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian at the same time. And there was this character, the judge. The weird thing about the judge was he kind of followed around one of the main protagonists in the story, but he didn't. Re- he wasn't really part of the story. And he also would be kind of like the judge of time and space. And then I was reading this text and I was like, what's really odd is to be able to rewatch someone's last moments of their life. And it started with this one line and it said, just as the sun sets behind Pihanga, Walter returned with one fish and stowed the boat away. That was a beautiful image in my head to start thinking about this work, but it was also, as I've kind of gone over the years and reflected, kind of the, the time and space model that I've been interested in, kind of my art practice or, you know what I mean, like if I'm at Nan's house living there for one year, you know what I mean, like just as the sun setting in that part or that's where this work is like operating or like I'm operating in, in that time and space model. And I also, when another side note was thinking about, I had been researching for my supervisor at Union, the one who inspired me to actually start making with him at Shannon Tiao. Um, and at one part I'd read like the Waitangi claim or the deed of the settlement for Tuwhare Tor. Like who'd read about Pihanga and the Tongadero and the TPD scheme, which is the power scheme that was like instituted through there and just destroyed all of that. They had Lake Lotto Idol on the other side. That was the jewel of Tufari Tor that got destroyed by the TPD scheme because the well, they pumped all it as the like the holding lake before it shot through the other side. So. You, you see Pihanga on the above Tudangi Township, and then you can see the water and the and the power actually running down there. And they had, so I knew like how complicated the histories were in all these areas. So that one line was like very interesting to me because it, it talked about the Moanga there. It talked about the time and space I was interested. So it talked about the land. That kind of line got me to this really odd place to start writing which was, but there was like me watching through this image of my grandfather's last moment through this piece of text made me think about the Teda and Maori slowing the sun um, because I was thinking about it through a Maori cosmology lens, thinking like if I set the sun free, what would he say after watching lots of people live and die? So that's how that first piece of text is talking about was if I gave Tera Nui the mic and was like, bro, I'll set you free from being held for all these eons of time. What would you lament? And that's kind of what both the, the texts are talking about. So I wrote that on my phone on notes and it actually started with the wire and I wrote it over a, a summer before the work was being made and I went back and sat with mum at home over Christmas and us. I think she would just been down. She'd gone down to spend some time at the river and site and I was trying to think about uh, making this work. 
And then my Rao was like so bad, you know what I mean? I've, I, I went to Kohanga when I was little, and I remember my grandfather, boy boy, came over and I could speak to him, Māori. And then mum was a bilingual teacher at school at the same primary school I was going to, so she didn't want me in her class, so I wasn't under her apron, so she like pushed me out and I went into mainstream. And then as I've got older and after high school, really, when I got into uni era, I've been to the odd time to learn te reo Māori so I can like listen and stare, but it's still something that I lament that I can't speak. But mum had gone and studied te reo at uni and one of the lecturers she had at Waikato Uni was uh, Dr. Ngāri Roberts. She's the most amazing te reo speaker and translator. She's translated like some of Ngāta's work. She's translated for the Ministry of Education. She's tūturu Māori. She's, I mean, that was her first language. Uh, Mum said, you should go and get it translated by Ngāri, Ngāri Roberts. And I was like, oh, yeah, will Ngāri do it for me? So I had this little weird text and sent it to her and then went up and just had a few conversations and she's such a pro she did it in like a couple of hours but like could do it so that the language reflected not only in sound but in the way that it feels like what i was trying to convey Mm -hmm. and she sent it back to me and then i can't pronounce it so it's like a whole big journey for me to like learn maori making this work and that was kind of this challenge or this jump that i wanted to do uh, at that point it was like okay can i i'd never in my wildest dreams think i'd make a moving image work that i would sing in maori speak in maori uh, but i'd always wanted to do so it was like going from never ever doing it to like having a go i think that's the biggest breakthrough mm. for the work for me so it was over summer and i needed someone to record it then so I went to my nan's house because it was the quietest place. It's in this quiet little street. Half the retirees live in it. So it's like dead silent. <laughs> and it was like boiling hot in summer. So I like turn the air conditioning unit on and then we'll turn it off. And then I had to turn the fridge off. And then I had to take the batteries out of the clock. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like trying to quietly <laughs> say this. And as I'm saying this, Te Reo Māori, that Ngāri is written for me, after a while, I realized that I want to try and sing it. So then I was like, okay, well, we'll have a go. But I n- never thought I was the, any great at singing or doing like kapa haka, you know what I mean? I was like, the worst. But this t- piece of text is demanding that I sing it. So I just took the, from what mum has said about the old ways of singing or like it's all mono like some kind of like monotone or some or like kind of like channeled my idea of what i thought like a a more tier tier maybe like but like a, mm-hmm. an artist version of having a go and i just started to sing and sing and practice and then i'd say it back to mum and then i'd ring Nadi and make sure i pronounced it right and practice and practice and practiced and then did that at nan's maybe for like a couple of weeks and then went down and thought, oh, I'll have a go at singing it alongside the Tongariro River. And I would get there at like, just as the sun's setting to be really romantic. And then I'd sing it. And some, I remember one day I'd been doing it and I turned around, I was getting to like 11, 12 at night. 
and I'm sitting alongside the river and I was like, oh, well, going back, there's a whole stretch of forest. You have to go back through the dark. And I'm like, it's kind of spooky. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, eventually after like lots of rejection, because uh, Shannon was really kind and mentoring me through the whole pr process. He's like, do another take. I went back uh, after practicing it for a couple of months and was almost about to give up and lay down on the, we had one bedroom that had no beds in it because we'd cleared some of the stuff out of the house and sang it at about 11 o'clock at night, mm. lying on the floor on the carpet with a, my laptop in the cupboard and a microphone. So <laughs> back to the original question, because it's really a co, you know what I mean? The English version I had written and the Maori version Nyade had written. So those two sit in the first part and that's the, use of that and it was really nice to kind of have both of them talk to that and then the second part is when I actually start singing the yeah, the wire I felt like the the feeling was embodied in the the language and also to maintain you know what I mean like a, a piece of the work that yeah you're just with the work or just with me singing yeah I find in the moments where there's no text on the screen you really move into a different space, especially, well, for me, you can't, I can't understand Tereo. I'm moving into a different space when I, when I'm with that part of the work. Yeah. I, I it also gave me a chance to think, uh, like interrogate what that story would actually be like, like what would it actually be like to be tied up as, Tira, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and you're like, like in this kind of like, well, it was like a quite a weird story. And I think about it, it was like, there's this being that's being slowed down, that's being like held in, in bondage. Of it. It's really an odd thing. Um, mm -hmm. But it also like effortlessly spoke to the condition for me of, of like living, you know what I mean? Like, just stuck in this kind of terrestrial. Yeah, <laughs> Just one more question about this work, and it's to do with the the last line, which is, I am but a conversation. I wondered if you could speak to that, if there's any any meaning behind that that you could talk further about. Uh, without being, like, really cliche, at the end of the life, you're, what is left is the conversations that are, or the stories that are told about you. Mm. But it was also going back to the beginning of the work when my nan would talk about her father. It was through those now old history that's being told about your family on like that, that keeps you alive. You know what I mean? As a being in the world is through the stories that we tell of them. Was there a wild theory that you had about that? <laughs> <laughs> about that life? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I just, it just struck me as, um, I, I almost wondered whose voice was saying that. Hmm. So at the same time, in the in the register of who's speaking, there's uh, Tiranui speaking about being tied up for years and being the son. At times, there's Maori brothers uh, that are speaking um, about being cold. There is, I guess the voice of the house and it's speaking 
about being, you know what I mean? It's being left there, you know what I mean? I'm thinking about that. There's the voice of like my nan, there's the voice of her father. So there's that, those are all the registers of the, of the different people that are speaking essentially for this one voice in the work. So yeah, it's a lament for my, for my nan's house. It's a lament for my nan. It's a lament for her father. It's a lament of the Maori's brothers not having enough time in the day. It's a lament of the son being tied up in, in bondage. And, it, and it's my own Kewaita Aroha, the love of my, my whanau. So it's those six voices all being channeled into one. Could you tell me a bit about the making of a portrait with my father? In particular, how does the memorialization in the film work differently with a living family member? Yes, interesting. <laughs> yeah, a portrait with my father. It's definitely a play on whose father and which portrait. It began with me thinking about a sense of memorialization of our namesake, Hans Homan Falk Tapsel, who was this Danish whaler slash mariner who was born in Copenhagen that came over to Aotearoa eventually. And the most eventful, we all the events of what we refer to today during that period, from the land wars to Ifakapu Tanga to the treaty settlements to the Kingi Tanga, in that time was his last lifetime. What was really interesting, he was apparently the first person to get married in Aotearoa to a Maori woman to Maria Ringa uh, up north at Marsden Cross. She was from Ngati Porka and she ran away in the middle of the night, <laughs> which I think is awesome. I think it's a funny <laughs> story. I can just imagine this bride running away in the middle of the night. And then there was a second wife, and then she had some sad death from one of those horrible early diseases that was coming through. And she's buried up in the hills up that way, near Marsden Cross. And then his third wife was Hine i Turama. And she was a high-standing Tiaroa woman. Uh, she gave gives our mana to the family quite often. People are associating Tapsu as a name, but it's actually Hine i Turama that is the one who gives all of our families respect. Tapsu in his old life was standing. Uh, there's a portrait of him with his daughter Katarina Simkin. It was this image that uh, I was taken by like Katarina's standing there and she's in this big Victorian dress with like kind of corset and it's blossoming and it's, it's black and white so it's hard to imagine what color I imagine it was black um, but it could have been something else and Philip is sitting next to her looking very very old at that point and, and with this kind of big Beard and look like it's, it definitely looks like he sailed across the world. So that was the, the first kind of inquiry. I was wondering what it was like, what Katarina would be feeling like. I was like, okay, so previous to, you know what I mean? Uh, essentially Māori and Pākehā coming together. She's the first generation. And at the time, like just as she was born, it was like, if Akaputanga had just been signed or was to be signed, because she was born in 1834. And when was Hifakaputanga signed? 1835. She was quite born in mm -hmm. 1834. 
So it was only like a year before. So I was thinking about like, and then the treaty comes along and then uh, Katarina's mother, Hini Turama, goes back to Orako Pa and fights and for the for the King Tanger and dies there. So that's fighting against the British, that's going on. I don't know if it had happened by the time of the photograph. At the time of the photograph, they were living out on Mutu Hora off the coast of Pakatani, and they ran uh, a trading post. And that whole area has the most, like, it's the most contentious, you know what I mean? You've got, like, a, a Danish Pahia man living with a Chalua family that's over in Ngatiawa land, so it's, like, very complicated. Like, I'm not going to emphasize that point. But Hini Turama is apparently gifted it at that time, not Tapsul. But I was thinking about Katarina standing there and the whole world kind of like the way that Māori society was working was like changing. Like her brother, Riti Riti, which translates to retreat, became the first one of the first constables of the area. So there's these big shifts in power that I'm thinking about. Of You had George Gray proposing the Rūranga system, which, you know, I'm thinking, okay, so you're going from the power sitting with chiefs and law and order being, uh, I read something today, no, or the other day when I was reading about the land courts of kind of going from what they described as communism. I don't know if I've got enough, like a communism to be able to describe what Maori society used to work like. So this kind of ludanga system that's completely like changing it. So I was just thinking about what is it like standing in this corset and this dress next to, her father and what would the image of herself feel like reflected to the society she was seeing changing around her at that time. That's the first part of the memorialization is working in that work. And then the part that in terms of there's another character in the portrait with my father, the second part of it is a portrait with my, with my dad, because I'd learned about, this particular time of our final living out in Motuhora, every time I'd go fishing with Dad out into the ocean of Makitu. So, like we've been, you mean like the Dane or like like the Maritimes, like our father's always done fishing, and Dad would take me out all the time fishing out on the boat. Well, not recently because we're getting old now. Which is what was what is similar about the that portrait and the portrait that of. The image that is actually of a, a living portrait of me and my dad. Mm. Every time we go out, he'd be like, ah, oh, I want to take you out to this fishing spot because that's where me and mum were there when she was pregnant. And we call all these hapuka and I really want to go there. But what I really want to go to is go and see when he take you out on the boat and go and see where the whanau used to live out on this island a bit further down the coast at Whakatane. So a portrait with my father is a little, in a real chill way. It's just like me and dad going on a bit of a fishing trip. Although we didn't go to catch any fish, we're just going for a bit of a nohi out on, at this place where we used to live a long time ago. And was that your first time glimpsing the island? Yeah, it is. Hey. So the work is you going with me and dad for the first time to go and have a look at many generations ago, Alfano, very briefly looking out there. Mm. I really get that sense from the artwork. The first glimpse comes a few seconds after the, the, the music starts, and then it's like, boom, 
and you see the island and I suppose it's really early in the morning is that right yeah I was like dad we have to you know the best time for filming is we need to get up like really early at dawn (laughs) 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 and I want to see the sun rising (laughs) before that point in the film in the early kind of scenes there's a kind of I think it's a simplicity but it's a simplicity in the imagery that really says so much and conveys so much and it's kind of in contrast to Hiwaiata Aroha as a portrait with my father is made up almost entirely of kind of immediately accessible moving images. What was your thinking behind this? The film is in three parts. Mm. So the first part is you see imagery of a lemon tree and that's at my uh, dad's house over in Paingaroa, um, and those are the fruit fruit trees he grows. In the second part, it goes from like uh, actual moving images to like really slowing down to just still images, almost like a moving slideshow. And then the last one is full blown, kind of like almost like getting into like landscape. We call like documentary, really average David Attenborough kind of scenes of of the island um, for the third part. These are all like unconscious decisions that I make when I kind of go along. I had kind of walked around shooting. These were taken at different times of day, which might be hard to recognize in the works, but because it could be like early morning all in one thing. But the one part of it was me walking around dad's house, the same kind of way I studied Nan's house for a year, but it was and just walking around because there's like a big, we're on a big orchard which is the Farno Orchard, all of the ones that buck up are the tapsels and different ones uh, collectively, it's a trust of the orchard and dad looks after the uh, orchardist. So I was walking around uh, like the little park closest to the house and was just following the sun around again. The scenes, when I, when I think about them now, were, don't call like mise-en-scene, where you kind of like, or like the, what are the ones that, uh, like Fiona Partington does of images of death, all the symbols within the images make up the story of what's going on within that. And when I edited it, it was kind of like, there's like the fruit trees and I just wanted to like slow down and look at them. There's the um, little dinghy that me and dad have taken out when I was younger and used to go and go eeling on and then there's the little, uh, we scale the fish and fill up the fish at the back of the house that have taken. And right close to that, there were, I think there was some kumble kumble growing. So it was me trying to, uh, it wasn't conscious, but it must have been conscious. I mean, don't do things for no reason, but think about. Uh, what is really a portrait of my father and it's his, all the signs of life that are, are growing before we segment it into the second part of the film where we actually go out to the ocean to fishing. Like if you ask my mum what would a portrait of dad be, she'd be like the ocean is a portrait of who he is. That's his whole blood is the ocean. Mm-hmm. He's so connected to it. And 
With that, the kind of decision to include photographs in the film, I was quite taken by that, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Well, all these ideas, there's never a new idea. They say, "Yeah." And after working with Shannon Tiao, who's uh, commissioned the work and has been my mentor, and I've been lucky to be alongside him while he's made his works, and it definitely rubs off on you the way he 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 looks at the world. And there were I can't remember the names of his works, but he'd done, he'd shown me a work which was just portraits that he'd done, which were just essentially like a slideshow. He always says to me like, "Stop fucking copying me," and I'm like, "But you're my biggest inspiration." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, when I saw him working with that kind of, I was like, "Yeah, that is like a really good way to interrogate what moving images." You know what I mm -hmm. mean? It's like really being like, "What the hell is this thing?" Mm. It was a way to shift the, like, I don't know how long you could sit through a work that was like all this really slow, long, romantic portraits of our Fano house with these words going along. It was a way to like shift the tone as well for the second part. It was mm -hmm. like, and also to reflect the, the feeling of like, I'm at home with all these familiar things at dad's house. We're going out to the ocean. I think we've been arguing a lot that summer. The older you get, the more bickering you get mm. in family life. And I'm being intolerant. Dad's being intolerant. We spend the whole time just bickering, but maybe that's the communication of love. And then when we got out onto the island, and he'd never been there either. So he, would, he was excited. There was this kind of moment of like, like a breath or like a, ah, we're finally here. And it just kind of, taken so it was the still image was to try and reflect that that real like slowing down of time and worries and conversation and everything and just like enjoying that peace at ocean with my dad and sharing that time with him mm. and what was your thinking behind the all the scenes of the manu kind of flying in and out in the light when I first thought about my whanau living there, and it's really kind of, I don't want to say it's too loudly, but at that time, the whanau like, lived and owned, were gifted the islands to Hine i Tūdama. So it was Motuhora and Fakari Island were both like, like what they really called home for that time. And I had been, there's a wai, uh, waitangi uh, deed of the settlement that Dad had sent me before we'd gone there, which described the whānau like in, a, in court proceedings. And at one point in time, Letireti had gone to court in the first native land court proceeding at Maketu and had been there with Judge Fenton and Judge Munro. So once again, I'd found another document that had this amazing like really privileged to have this document to look back at some final history and have some ways to look. You know, I mean, I'm like, first of all, because Tapsul had done a lot of trading and had managed to be successful. You know, and we have an access through a document, an early photograph. You know, I mean, amazing that we, I could see that. And the second part was this Waitangi, and it was Y153, or, and then it says Y206. 
which are the document names and it was the Ficardi one. Anyway, it described an image of Fuhora before it got there. That the description was well owned is a mile and a half long from east to west and up to half a meter wide. The area is approximately 354 acres. The surface is mostly rugged, especially along the north coast. Here, cliffs are from 50 to 1,000 feet extend continuously and rise almost vertically from sea level. The highest point is 1,140 feet. Uh, it is in the northern middle part, about 11 change from the north coast. And the bare precipice face to the sea displays an excellent selection of rock that forms the island. The only easy country in the area to access area of 10 acres or 12 acres of tussock covered dune is in the southwest corner of the island. Anyway, there's descriptions about the Pohutukawa and different things. And But what kind of like struck me is like I'd read about this and I'd heard about this history for ages. And then when I got there and actually saw the friggin' scale of these cliffs rising from the water and then thinking, oh, this is where someone would have called home for a bit. Like that was like nuts to me. Really practically for scale, the Manu <laughs> were good kind of scale indicators of like, how big this mm. thing is it's like i always think about like mount fuji you have that image but it's like that but it's rising out of the ocean and you actually get out there on the boat it's just like the most pristine beautiful island in tonga and at that point in there were heaps film, of money they're just tons yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i guess it's the one of the only things that could live there there's seals out there mm. um, that are all on the rocks. I feel like there were like goats or something, maybe. Hey, goats. It's a whole, it's like a whole like party. You get out there, yeah. and you're like okay, <laughs> ecosystem on the island. And in the film, at that point, the text shifts to Tere Māori. Is that also part of the history that you're talking about and your connection to that place? Ah, uh, that one. That was a different one, eh? Like I tried to do the same protest with Ngari Roberts. I'd written this crazy text and she like read it and she's like, I'm not going to translate it. And I was like, what? She's like, it's too explicit what you've written. It wasn't about the island. It was thinking about, there's always like Maui as a weird protagonist that's in the back of, back of all these works. And that one, I was also thinking about Maori and his brothers going up to like fish up the eco of Maori. I guess there's a clue to that in the earlier text. You'll see in the last word, there's, it's a shapeshifter. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about a portrait of someone, like essentially we're always shapeshifting. I don't like to degrade from what Māori cosmology is, but sometimes when you're trying to relate to it, when we're such, I wish I could like transform into a manu, um, like Māori could. How can I like remind ourselves that it isn't that distant? Essentially, we're always, I, I think it was that inner turmoil with me and dad fighting over that summer or like, you're never going to be the same person or the same being. You're always shape-shifting the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then I was also looking at the land and its histories and the and the way it's changing. And it's always shape-shifting because, you know what I mean, when Maori fishes up the Ika, you know what I mean? What well, wasn't it? It was this, I was like, what would that actually be like? And I read different accounts of that. 
You know what I mean? Like, was it a big fish? But then also there's other accounts of there were people living under the ocean that were descendants from someone else. And then they kind of came up and there were like fires and a whole, like a lot of people emerged out when the Ica came up. So I'd read about that. But then I also thought about his brothers, like cutting it up and how violent it would be. So I was trying to write that in a text anyway. And I gave it to Nida. She wouldn't translate it. So then I was like, okay, I kind of got humbled. This person I respect dearly has told me that I can't mm-hmm. write about the violence of cutting up the island. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like changed focus. And I thought about how special it had been, like, learning to fish from my dad when I was really young. But I was, you know, I was just thinking about also, like, a good fuckatoki to, like, go forward into the future. Mm. Uh, so in the middle part, there's one that's, like, cast forward, cast again, cast true, cast something else. But it's all about casting, but it's also about, like, going forward and sending good energy into the onwards. Mm. So what I really enjoyed was instead of writing a wire at this time, Ngaidi and I wrote a whakatoki or what Ngaidi said to me, it's no, James, it's the whakatoaki. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, that's because you know it through and through. And you know what I mean? And you know I mean? you've written it, you've made it. So just like I had learned from dad of how to fish and he's passing all his knowledge and his family histories about where we used to live and his whole way of life. Uh, I wanted to do it in English first and then Māori in second, so there's this whakatoki that you could learn while watching the work in the first part, and then you have it in Māori in the second part. Hey, it's the same text. Yeah, so it's Ooh. like a, a, a teaching. Teaching <laughs> you how to fish conceptually, like my yeah. dad taught me how to fish. Thank you, James, for being part of this conversation today. You've been listening to Sites of Connection on Circuit Cast. Kia ora. Kia ora.